You're listening to the PMO Strategies Podcast, where PMO leaders become impact drivers. This is episode 119. Well, hey there, Impact Driver. Welcome to the PMO Strategies Podcast. I am your host, Laura Bernard. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about PMO value in a changing landscape. Now, executives and PMO leaders alike regularly navigate complex business, political, and social environments. But how does one choose the best focus, know when and how to pivot, and sustainably adapt to changing business needs. The 21st century necessitates a cooperative, dynamic leadership tribe. So how do you as a PMO leader create and show your value in an ever-changing environment and when your customers are changing their minds faster than you can update the requirements? We're going to bust some myths about diversity and culture, as well as dive into the places you should be focusing your PMO efforts to achieve the highest impact possible. Before we dive in, this episode is sponsored by Meisterplan. Meisterplan is a project portfolio management and resource management tool that helps companies create realistic and achievable project portfolios. With features like drag and drop project ranking, real-time scenario comparison, and allocation heat maps, portfolio managers have all the project data they need right at their fingertips. To see how Meisterplan can help you uncomplicate your project portfolio, take a free 30-day trial at meisterplan.com. That's M-E-I-S-T-E-R-P-L-A-N.com. Okay, let's dive in. Now with me today is Stephen Fulmer, my now dear friend, multiple time speaker at the PMO Impact Summit and podcast guest here on the PMO Strategies Podcast. And besides all of those cool things, he's also the president and founder of Blue Sphere Solutions. And his purpose and mission is to help humans expand their individual and group potential to truly thrive. I love that. As a neurosociologist, he blends modern scientific tools and understanding with the behavioral observations of the 19th and 20th centuries to develop real and sustainable approaches to success. Steve, thank you so much for being here for this episode. And I'm really excited about this topic. You and I kind of geek out on this stuff when you start talking about the neurosociology and all these things, but I'd really love for you to talk a little bit more about yourself, your background, and why neurosociology, it's hard to even say, is so important. Great. Well, let's see if we can hook some of the listeners today. I went to grad school to get a PhD in neurochemistry back in the 80s, and I really wanted to understand how the human mind works and decided that's not what I wanted. I got into electrical engineering, computer design, and then what became software IT. And from that, essentially leaned in or stepped forward when somebody said, Steve, we need you to lead this group to design this new system. That was my introduction to project management. And I got, I guess, really good at it. And like many project managers, suddenly became the leader of a whole bunch of project managers. We'll call that the PMO before they were called PMOs. Right. And I had some great success. And so the CIO of 
the third or fourth major corporation I worked for sent me to training and said, we're going to have you start setting organizational strategy. Well, that's business analysis, at least to some degree, that's what it was perceived at the time. And I had an MBA. So they said, here we go, make this work. And I had some great success. The company was purchased or sold off merger acquisition. And I didn't like the changes that were going on because it was all process and procedure. Mm-hmm. And my mentor in project management asked me to start teaching project management with him and his consultancy. It was back in about 2004, 2005. And as a result of that, catching up to the present, I had the pleasure of editing several of his textbooks and, and project management certification. And then as I miss him dearly, as he passed away, I got to author essentially the PMI's PMP books for courses for the fifth and sixth edition of the PMBOK. And he'd written them for the prior versions. And it just got me into teaching. And I realized that a lot of the processes and procedures didn't focus on people. Mm. So I started studying what causes projects to be successful. And and much as you're aware, it's about people. And so Mm -hmm. I say that PMO ought to be the people management organization And so we're there to support the strategy and the vision, not the process, not the procedure. Those of us contributing recognize that without people, it's not success. And I discovered through the last 14 or 15 years of research, teaching us, writing books, that there is a meta science that's been evolving in the 21st century called neurosociology. And the concept is a meta science is as opposed to being a silo like anthropology or behavioral psychology or chemistry. It's taking results across multiple disciplines and looking and confirming how they affect one another and how they uh, interrelate. That's really how some of the greatest thinkers of, well, recorded history are. It's when they are literally studying the concepts across multiple different sciences or aspects Mm -hmm. that they start having the aha moments. How does A integrate with C and, Mm and how do we find factors? Well, the technology of the 21st century really has given us some insights. And one of the questions I said you might ask is, what does a good PMO or an executive need to be? I would have four or five years ago said, become a behavioral psychologist. Mm-hmm. Understand how and why people behave like they do. Mm-hmm. But the challenge with that is the science of behavioral psychology. I'm not trying to push aside any really well-known behavioral psychologist, but that particular silo is observation-based. So it's really looking at symptoms and then trying to derive causes from observation. Mm -hmm. But but tools like the functional MRI that's become very prominent last 10 or 15 years allows us to actually record the neurons that fire. And if we add doing chemical studies of people's blood, you can see essentially what hormones are firing with the emotions. So we really know cause rather than symptomatic effect. And those are teaching us how to reinterpret over 100, 150 years of behavioral psychology to understand root cause. If you can affect root cause, you can solve a problem a whole lot better than simply addressing the symptoms as they appear. And so a leader who's understanding root cause behind behavior, behind individual motivation, behind all the social complexity we've got today, as soon as you start to understand the underlying part of that, what we perceive as this complex set of requirements and how do we address mm-hmm. it all, mm-hmm. it's not really simple, but it's easier to address because we're not trying to address one symptom at a time. We're going after root cause. Wow. Okay. All right. So that's a lot. That is awesome. It is a lot. It's a and time. it's like, so oh my gosh, what? <laughs> okay. So let's back up real quick. Can okay. we 
in layman's terms, summarize what neurosociology means, because we're going to be building upon that with the next things that we talk about. So can you just summarize in layman's terms, if you were describing it to somebody that didn't have all this cool background that you do, how would you describe neurosociology? Okay. So the neural part, let's talk about our neural physiology, our brain, our nervous systems, yeah, and what makes us a human being as an individual. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to call that the neural part. It manifests in our physical attributes. It manifests in our emotions. It manifests in our consciousness, our mental processes. And I'll throw, without being religious, the spirit of the soul in there, the, the as yet undefinable by science. Right. So that's who we are when I say neural. And you can't look at any one aspect of who we are, mind mm -hmm. being, et cetera, without all of that as integration. So that's the neural part. The sociology part is how do humans interact? And we've all heard that we're a herd species. Well, I prefer to say we're a pack species because we're yeah. more predator than prey, right. et cetera. But right. it's the social interaction of humanity. And then we bring in terms like culture. We bring in terms like what's a team or what's a tribe. Mm -hmm. And those actually have limits or boundaries for us, both neurologically and sociologically. Once mm -hmm. we understand what the boundaries are and the tools that the human essence, who we are, has to overcome the boundaries, we suddenly discover human potential and we don't bang our heads and our efforts into the boundaries. We step over around them because we're aware of them. Mm. And so th this whole concept of neurosociology is let's not keep repeating, banging our head against the wall. Mm. Let's find the solutions that work more consistently and sustainably and quit experimenting with each other and our business plans and start using that which works, which is part of individual and part of social, right? You and I enjoy talking to each other and having these conversations. Yeah. But there would be other people that if I started it would just go, yeah, no, not me, God. <laughs> exactly. So all the people listening to this podcast that are still here, that are still with us are like, oh, this is cool. I can't wait to geek out on this. And I think it's so really cool. So one of the things when I'm listening to you talk, what's coming out for me is it's all connected. Right. That's, that's the theme that I hear. And I first learned that for me personally, doing acupuncture, because my acupuncturist over the years, and I'll tell you, I'm going to, Steve, I was totally against it. I was like, I don't believe in that, any of that hokey nonsense. What are you talking about? But my massage therapist years ago, when I was under tremendous big life-changing events all happening at once, they say all the big life-changing events, they were all happening to me at one time. And it was a really difficult time. And my massage therapist, who's now a dear friend of mine, said to me, girl, I need help from the inside out. <laughs> and so she convinced me to go see an acupuncturist. And I've seen several now. And what they tell me is that I'm particularly sensitive because I can something, they'll put a needle in one place in my body. And then the, I can feel a change in other places in my body. And nobody's told me what I should expect to see or feel or experience. I just do. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I feel this happen when you do that. And they're they always tell me it's all connected. So we think neuro, we just think the brain, but it's actually our entire body. We have nerves running out. Everything in your body is connected. It makes sense to me that everything that you feel and that you experience and that you sense around you and within you and is all connected. And then it's all connected to your brain physically. And then you take in this whole, how do we interact with everybody outside of us? And that's all in your brain also. And it's a really cool experience. It's a really cool thing to think about. 
because it is all connected, not just within us, but around us and with everybody around us. So for all of our impact drivers listening, if you're still with us and you're ready to geek out with us, this is actually really cool because it tells us a lot about how we can interact with all of the people that we're engaging with on these projects and how do we tackle things like bringing people with us through the change process? How do we tackle if we have this false premise of change resistance going on, right? You and I have talked about this a lot. I don't believe in change resistance. I believe we're doing a bad job at bringing people with us through the change, right? And so I think it's about flipping that whole dynamic. And that's all about how we're connected with other people, right? So I think this is so cool to me because it's all of the challenges and the interactions and the way we're engaging with people is all based in science. And you're here to help us figure out how do we, as impact drivers, do a better job of leading change and managing our projects and helping our organizations deliver on strategy using these things that you've learned from your experience in neurosociology. So I think it's so cool. I love it. And thank you for saying that. So wouldn't you love if you could be in the state that the acupuncturist gave you without having all the needles stuck in you, (laughs) when you walk into a room with a bunch of other people and you're in that awareness of who you are, Yes, not just you, but the two or three or four or five other people with whom you're closely interacting are all in that same place at that same time. So cool. I mean, it would be so cool if we were there. Well, the human body can sustain that in small numbers. In PMI, we talk about a team being six to eight people. Yeah. And our brain uses dopamine to fast switch between sensory inputs. Okay. Think about a cocktail party. If you've Mm -hmm. got three or four or five people, no problem keeping the communication going. You add a, a seventh or an eighth. For many people, that's more than they can handle switching from one conversation or attention from one person to the other. And literally the size of a team is defined to be no more than six to eight. And it's totally based upon the neurophysiology of our senses being able to maintain simultaneously a certain number of sensory inputs and outputs. It's not that you're hearing everybody talking, but you can switch to a degree. And then at some point, your neural system hits sensory overload. And you have to literally move from one group to another group to another group. Now, mm-hmm. if we can, and that's an individual. That's what you do individually. Well, right. Think about big businesses that are hierarchical in nature. That evolved because a single leader or individual can't manage one on many with more than six or seven other people at a time. They can ah. control by direction down the hierarchy, but they can't interact dynamically with more than six or seven. It's literally a neurophysiological limit. We've known the number, the military's known the number since the early 1900s. Squads and patrols are small inside or somebody gets left behind or ignored. And that's the person who gets taken out by the leopard or the enemy or whatever. But now we know, we literally know the neurophysiology thanks to functional MRIs to know that it's a physical neurological limit you can't overcome. You can find tools to move from one group to the next effectively. But now you have to move beyond the neural systems that take sensory input into our cognitive skills. And unless you learn to switch from this 0.1, seconds, Kahneman wrote a book and got a Nobel Prize called Thinking, Fast and Slow. And he identified through his research, we have some neurons that respond in 0.1 to 0.2 seconds, totally subconscious, not aware of it. That's what triggers your ability to handle small groups. And then we have other sets of neurons that respond in one or two second cycles. 
That's our deeper cognitive thought. Hmm. So just here's a little tool, not the only one, but it's one. Mel Robbins wrote a book called The Five Second Rule. Yeah. She teaches people to count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, and then act. It's a simple, I mean, it's a simple concept that the book has become very powerful. By counting to five backwards, you are forcing yourself to overcome the systems that react in point one to point two seconds and allowing you to switch into a conscious reflective mode as opposed to a, you know, gee, I'm going to react. I'm going to let my system take over and do what I'm patterned and used to do. Mm. You're a parent, right? Mm-hmm. You've got a son. Anybody ever tell you count to 10 before you take or make an action or decision? <laughs> Same thing. You're overcoming what we now know is a 0.1 to 0.2 second response. Yeah. It, it makes sense. People told parents told their children to do it, but, but now right. we know exactly neurophysiologically why. Once you understand the mechanism, you can understand which tools work when you're interacting with individuals and which tools work in social settings. That simple distinction takes this huge complex world and say, which tool set do I use in one scenario versus another? So it's interesting you say that because my husband, who was a former colonel in the army, always talks about the first dart and the second dart when he's trying to explain how our son, an emotional teenager, of course, responds to things. And he talks about how that first reaction, the the immediate, the 0.1 second reaction, you can't always control, but you can control what you do after that. So I like this concept of the five second rule of helping all of us when we get into challenging situations as a parent and children trying to figure out how to work together. I love this concept of the counting backwards to be able to help everyone calm down for a second and make sure we act and respond the way that we should. So your advice is timely, at least for this family, because that is something that we are challenged with on a daily basis around here. And it's an easy one. 10 might be a little too high for people to count. Most people can't handle five. It really only takes two or three seconds to engage, to engage the cognitive mind. And that's what I call choice. If you're reacting, you're not choosing. Right. Not until you switch into the higher cognitive functions, which I call reflections, the term right. I use in the book, that right. you are going beyond the let's react. Exactly. And how many times have you been in a meeting where you've had an emotional reaction to what somebody said? Mm-hmm. You felt it, you're ready to respond, but you didn't hold back or somebody else didn't hold back. And mm-hmm. you, you've now lost the moment to get right. cognitive, right. to get complex or to deal with the complex. So I can see how all of our impact drivers, especially as they're moving quickly, creating change, interacting with people, probably getting impatient with the pace of change around them and wanting things to move faster to keep everyone on track. I can definitely see how some of this could be very useful to them. So I'd like to dive into very specifically our PMO leaders or program portfolio, project managers, business analysts, et cetera, that are listening to this and saying, okay, great, this is all cool, but what do I do? How is my role impacted by this? And you have some thoughts on that about how the role might be changing or how it needs to evolve in order to incorporate the kind of things that you're learning here. Can you talk to us about that a little? Sure. Absolutely. And I'll I'll talk generally to leaders right up front. So, I mean, PML leaders, executives, whoever somebody perceives they're a leader and a leader is somebody who's trying to, I will say, influence a culture, can't create Mm -hmm. it, but influence a culture, get people to go in a particular direction, cause people to accept change. So you're trying to lead people through a scenario. 
Mm-hmm. If you're doing that, your physiology will not let you use what I will call the reflective cognitive power for more than three independent 90-minute sessions per 24-hour period. Oh, I think you and I touched on this either when we were talking before or when we were recording your summit session. Go into more of that because I, I think that's going to be very useful for folks. Well, we are biochemical creatures. We have a biochemistry in our system and that biochemistry supports our neural system, which includes our brain. And our neurons require the right mixture of potassium and sodium, which is part of the brain function, and then different hormones. So mm-hmm. I, I talk about in my if they listen to my uh, PMO summit presentation, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, and there are adrenaline and other chemicals at least at different points in time. Well, our brain is essentially a lipid sponge. It holds on to all of the nutrients and all of the precursors that our neurons need to fire and send signals or Mm -hmm. to process complex thought. Mm -hmm. And they are depleted. They are converted during the process, the energy process of the functions of the neurons. That's the physical system. And so you have enough to focus heavily for about 90 minutes, the frontal cortex, I'm pointing at my forehead, to be able to do what people call flow, getting into the flow and doing that kind of flow work that a good leader wants to do. That's where we solve complex problems. That's where we do problem solving. That's where we look outside the box and address the complex. Mm -hmm. But you can only do it for about 90 minutes at a time before your system, through activity, proper hydration, and having the right nutrients in your system, it's just cycle. It's now yeah, it's the circulatory sure. system gets the residue out and brings the new substances that you need to the part of your brain to be able to do it. If you try to spend more than 90 minutes in heavy downflow thought, having written my book, and I don't try to sit and write for two or three hours. You got to take a break. You got to move around. You got to get water. You got to take the restroom break and you got to do something else because your system won't replace the nutrients it takes two to three hours. I mean, it just takes that kind of activity to do it. So you've got a block on your calendar, you and every leader individually take this point. Each of you have slightly different cycles of your day. Right. And all this, when it kicks in. And so if you know that your first productive session is at seven o'clock in the morning, set yourself up for seven to eight 30, that nothing gets in your way of being able to use that conscious thought. Right. Get out of the way right before it to slide into it, get in the focus and know that an hour and a half in a timer goes off. Stop trying. I mean, stop, <laughs> stop trying. Just, you you can't go, <laughs> but, but it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, the alcohol or the, whatever else your, your pleasure substance might be personally that makes you numb. Yeah. You don't know that you're numb once you're numb. Yeah. Just enjoying yourself. When your brain's depleted, the chemicals, what's left is all the stuff that just makes you kind of like, I'm just drifting through life. You think you're being effective, but just like driving impaired, you're thinking impaired. You can't. You know, that's really interesting. You say that because you and I both know that multitasking is a myth. You're really just task switching and you're reducing your productivity with every time you switch tasks. And so that's kind of the point is that you think you're being productive because you're busy and you're moving, but your brain's resetting every time you switch tasks. And so you end up being not nearly as productive as you think you are. And everyone walks around saying they're so busy, but busy is not the goal. 
right? Productive is the goal, achieving the outcomes, making the impact, getting the results, the same thing here. And I like this idea. I still have to figure out exactly like what those time windows are. And it's very easy to do when we're not recording for the PMO impact summit, right? (laughs) Versus when we are, but those are 90 minute sessions. We would block on the calendar. It's like, okay, I need a break between those because your brain kind of goes numb. So I can so see it in my own work. And I'm wondering if there's a way, so that's great. That's a really good takeaway that this audience needs to keep in mind for their own productivity and what kind of expectations they set for their teams. So there's the big one. There's the big one. How many of your team do you want to work an eight or 10 hour day or overtime to get a deliverable done? Right. Why would I want someone that I'm going to pay work eight or 10 or 12 hours when I know that realistically an aggregate, I only have four and a half hours of real productive time from them. Right. They can get other things done in in an eight hour day. They can deal with habitual or repetitive tasks, process the email, sharpen the pencils, take a lunch break, whatever. Those are recovery times. So you build those into the day. But how would I expect somebody to do quality work? Right. Well, I'm not going to get quality. I get it. If you're in a, we say DevOps, and I'm not trying to dispel, oh, this is how we work. Operational people and operational automated systems learn how to make the repetitive less dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's our goal, to make it productive and not dangerous at the same time. So you can have people do the repetitive jobs, but you're not asking them to use their cognitive skills. Mm. But as soon as you have somebody in a position where you're asking them to use cognitive skills and problem solving, Mm -hmm. not the person at the reception desk, but the person who has to deal with a customer on the phone, that a salesperson better figure out when they're really in the flow. That's when they want to talk to the big customers, not the processing of orders. Right. And it's learning that that's the way all humans operate as a biophysical neurological creature. And anytime you try to change it, if it's not habituation, the repetitive motion, you can't expect people to do it. And so you, you can't judge for how people react. Oh, Steve, this is so good. Okay. I want to go back to something that you said real quick, because I have heard many times and probably said it myself that we need to create a project culture, but I heard you say that you can't create culture. So why is that? And what do you do instead? All right. Well, you can't create culture. And I would say that with the understanding human, both neurology and sociology in the 21st century, the nature and nurture, not nature or nurture, but nature and nurture question has been answered. So what we are become as patterns that are partly genetic, partly conditioned. Some of the genetic is how we learn and accept inputs and how we process them. We could go down a rabbit hole of learning and all of that. But by the time most individuals are 12 to 18 years old, they minimally have a core set of morals or values. And so Mm -hmm. let's just call it core values. In the late 1990s, and there are some three or four theories out there. So I'm not going to say here's a specific one to look at. I can name you or anybody at some of them. You can go and Google or search for universal core values. So if you would just search universal core values, you'll find a couple of the key theories out there. The most common one is a circular system of 12 core values, and they show how one core value is kind of an opposite of another or how core values merge together. Individuals pretty much have their own core values by the time they're 12 years old, Mm -hmm. and they're kind of hardwired in. They can be changed, but they're typically changed by severe trauma to a person, whether that's physical or psychological, but they're other than that, they're established. And so they're really, really, really hard to change, even for an individual. 
So let's just say you have a group of people with a set of core values. Those core values are the foundation upon which any culture is built or developed. So you can't build a culture unless you select for individuals who have either identical or complementary core values at their foundation because they react to those core values. And whether they react hugely openly and outwardly or it's just an internal reaction, we all have them, we all operate based upon them. And so those core values aren't necessarily culture, but they're how we interpret cultural behaviors that we accept or don't accept. Okay. So we will, in our brain or mind, accommodate a lot of behavior changes as long as we find a way to justify them within the core values. And there's a lot of studies done on that. And we actually, this is where the functional MRI part, current technology, we can actually recognize and measure people acting or reacting to what's said or done about them, around them in the environment, or what people say or do. And you can get a sense of whether deeply internally they're reacting or not. We've all learned as adults in society to try to accommodate everybody, particularly in this multi-identity environment where all trying diversity, et cetera. But those are reactions. I mean, our reactions to other people are instantaneous, but it's because our external 0.1, 0.2 seconds are making comparisons against core memories or core systems inside. Is this same as how I am and who I am, or is this different? And if it's different, we instantly have a 0.1, 0.2 second reaction. Right. Until we have more time to reflect and accommodate it, we just, we're not going to accept it. So you say, let's build a culture. You can't build a culture unless the key people, participants, individuals in it have common core values. And you can't create those or recreate those. You can only identify them and try to pull together a team who have these common core values. That is the foundation for people accepting or not accepting the guidance, the principles, the goals of a particular project, of a particular organization. All the top HR people say you don't hire a person for skill set. You hire them for the match within your business. And if you have the right people within the business, then you can pull them together and give them a common goal because they have a common foundation. And so culture can't be created per se, unless you have already hired for or gathered for people with common core values. And most people Mm -hmm. don't understand what core values are or could identify what their core values are. So one of the, I think the roles of a PMO, this is why I say people, is to help leaders and help the organization understand really what are the core values. These aren't your vision, mission, statement kind of things. These aren't, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses? What are my customer-centered goals? This is really the operating standards against which people compare that for themselves and for other people. I will work better with somebody who has common core values to me than with somebody who does not. And if I find somebody that's got an opposing application of core values, it's not wrong. It's just their makeup versus mine. That will create a natural conflict that we're constantly having to overcome. Then you've got to find a shared goal despite the core values that you're both willing to work on. But that then takes the reflective cognitive thought to say, okay, we have very different values, but we share this in common. So I'm willing to work with them. That's where we do compromise. But do you want every project and every effort you do to constantly get the psychologist or the mediator in there that helps you figure out how to 
play win-wins or compromise where you never really get to the fully collaborative, creative, reflective power of the human potential. You can't really create a culture. You can design for one. You Mm -hmm. can select for one. Once you've identified people who do that, now you can use that to your advantage, the core values to create a culture that's then maintained. And there's all kinds of social examples on that. But we now understand that that's fundamental to the human individual and the human mechanism. And we're really not all that different. I mean, if there's only 12 or 13 key core values, we're not all that different. But you don't need, and they're not a negative, you don't need somebody who just has a very different driving core value as a part of your organization. Unless you're really always wanting the one, and I hate using the term, who you, you want that one individual who always plays devil advocate to everything you say and do, which might be useful in a risk, heavy risk environment to always have that person that's the naysayer. Right. But people won't become uncomfortable with them very, I mean, they won't be part of your social mechanism because people won't be comfortable around them beyond the, the, their role as a risk advocate all the time. Right. So let's say, well, let's do two sides of this argument. Let's let's say people believe this, okay, and they have the ability to hire in a certain way in order to have that right set of core values. Let's you do that. But then let's also talk about what do you do if you do not have control over hiring and you already have enough people or you're in a hiring freeze or you got who you got, right? So let's talk about, I think you have an example of someone that was able to do this kind of hiring differently and how that changed. Can we talk about that really quick? Sure. And I'm just going to do a couple of terms in here beforehand as definitions as well. When we talked about teams, if you're trying to get things done teams, so say agile, we already know the teams are small. That Mm -hmm. actual team itself should be a selection of people with common core values. They will find a way to build that agile team dynamic more powerfully when they Mm -hmm. have common core values, because now you're not having personal differences that they overcome just for the sake of getting productivity achieved. Tribe at the next level. And sociologists say a tribe is about 75 to 150. And above that tribe, that's a Mm -hmm. sale thing. Tribes start to splinter. And some of that splintering is about that core value concept. And we know more about neurochemistry and neurosociology for that number. It's kind of a hard limit. People doing scaled agile discover that above about 80 people, which would be about 10 eight size groups or maybe eight groups and some leaders, scrum masters, facilitators, integrators, the communication and the ability to compromise starts to fail above 75. It's just a number. So you, you say, hey, what do we do if we don't have the ability to hire? Well, if you have a large organization with a thousand or 10,000 employees globally, you are better to select for people with common core values for a focused effort, whether it's at a team or I'll call it a tribe or a project level, whatever, however you want to keep that, that organization. It's better to select for that for an effort because they will work together to accommodate change and challenge and creativity and all of the higher potential of the human mind because they're not constantly faced with an underlying level of literally subconscious neural agitation all the time, every day. So you're, you're looking for better. So the first thing is to help people understand their own personal core values and to seek out other people that will help them be creative because of common core values. And, and core values aren't necessarily one's better or worse than another. They're just different. Right. You know, so we talk things like integrity or truth, et cetera. And I mean, if you went through the list, I don't want to do that now, but if you went through it, integrity means different things to different people. Right. But integrity means doing what you say you will do. Yes. At whatever cost. Right. That's not the same as being honest or trustworthy. Right. 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 
it's a, but it's a core value. So right. you'll do whatever you say. You'll work extra hours, etc. If right. integrity is one of your values, and it drives people differently if they're based on integrity versus somebody who values integrity, but they value two or three other core values higher. And we find that most people don't have more than three or four core values against which they make their highest priority decisions. Because right. remember, your subconscious system makes a decision in 0.1 or 0.2 seconds. It doesn't check every value. It doesn't check mm-hmm. every condition. It checks the ones that have been reinforced as primary inside that individual. Hmm. Okay. You see what I'm saying? It's yeah, I do. Collect for it for the effort. Right. So we want to hire for those core values and then teach them the skills that Correct. they need, right? That would be better. Okay. Humans with a, the power of human potentials, we have the ability, if we have the right desire, to yeah. learn almost any skill. Right. Depending on how it's taught us, and we could go down that whole path of educational styles and methodology. Right. right. Yeah. So then what happens if you don't have the ability to hire for those skills? How do you create? Well, you can't create it. So how do you work within that culture or create an environment, let's say, that supports that culture that you need in order to be effective in delivering on this initiative, for example. You could hire me or other consultants, I'm not trying to get hired necessarily to do this, who can help you find the mechanism to start within your organization to identify core values, Uh, particularly amongst your most creative, the people that you want to be problem solvers and and the people mm -hmm. that get into the creative solution, the design kind of phase, not necessarily the habitual, so that you start to identify them and have them understand how to work with people of like mind. And also to, which is common in the diverse world, to accept people with different core values, simply from the perspective that they make judgments based on separate criteria than you do. Right. That's not external diversity. That's internal diversity. Right. All the stuff we see that's diverse, that's external colors of the skin, hair yeah. color, right. makeup, no makeup, tattoo. I mean, all on it, you go down the huge list. We see those and we make instant judgments, but that's really not how we make our long-term decisions. So mm-hmm. helping people understand that. So that's a little bit of education for people to be aware of. For so that's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be to help people simply understand the differences in core values. But now we start to get complex. And I don't know that you can show this, but imagine a sea anemone, all the spines on it. I have one here. I'll show Laura on screen that I use for demonstration. Human beings aren't measured on a linear or a quadrant or, you know, I mean, it's literally hundreds of spines that make up the human individual. And we try to measure ourselves on two or three or four quadrant systems. Good luck with that. We're far more complex when we start looking at everything. When we start looking at diversity, we're talking about internally, not externally, accepting other people. But mm-hmm. now we have to talk about core values. We talk right. about people's, how they habituate, how they learn best. Right. Now right. we start accepting that I can work with another person and recognize their decision process is not like mine. Right, so right. That's a way to do it. Okay, so good, so good. Okay. Lots of tools, no single answer, I guess I did, I would say. Lots of tools. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And all of the the people that are listening to this podcast and want to learn more about it, they can engage with you. You're still available in the Impact Driver mobile app and they can connect with you there. Absolutely. And I encourage people that I'm promoting it to to connect with me with the Impact Driver mobile app well beyond. And and, and, just start a dialogue with me. Right. Find out whether there's more I can give you or I can offer you or whatever. I'm still doing my research. So I love right. 
just discussing with people to see whether my insights or their insights will help each other. Right. right. And to kind of learning and growing all together. So one more thing that I'd like to touch on that we talked about a little bit and you and I have talked about before, but I think this might be a good quick takeaway for people. So we've talked about those 90 minute cycles of work effort. And I have learned about the 90 minute cycles roughly that you sleep through and how the whole brain does its clearing out and you go into deep sleep and REM sleep and all this stuff. And understanding my sleep 90 minute cycles has been very helpful to making sure that I wake rested, et cetera. But how do you figure out what your optimal 90 day cycle or 90 day, 90 minute cycles are during the day. Okay. So I'll just go back to human circadian rhythms. Yeah. So the sun is a 24 hour cycle, but Mm. our human circadian rhythm is about 25 hours. Mm. I mean, the most precise measurement by anybody was 24 hours, 11 minutes, plus or minus 16 minutes in their research. So just say 25 hours. We're starting to see studies about that in functional MRI, but it's not the heaviest use of the resource. But to to, to come to a piece of that, I'm going to say that the reason that it's more than 24 hours is we tend to store a reserve. So if we need to fight, flight, freeze, faint, we have the extra chemical resources in our bodies to react. Right. Um, And so you, right before you go to bed, your body says, oh, I'm going to start setting myself up for the next 25 hour cycle. The first part of your sleep gets rid of the waste. And literally, we now know functional MRI reprocesses every single neural input you got, including subconsciously during the day. Wow. So it's in a high speed, fast forward, it goes through it and it's reassessing. Do I keep this information for processing or no, it's same. It's not a big deal. Throw it away. Because we want the opportunity to remember where that beehive was to get honey if we're a hunter gatherer or whatever. And it's just how we're patterned. We then wake up briefly and our body runs this whole flush of biochemical suit that freezes our muscles and accelerates our heart you've ever waken up sweating in the middle of the night feeling like you're frozen you can't move you're tied down in bed your body is now doing a reset and high pump the brain cardio system is putting all the precursors of all of those things your brain needs to solve problems into your head and your brain is then going to solve all the unsolved challenges that it it perceives, not consciously, that you experience in the prior day, all your stresses. And it's going to try to associate or sequence or solve those problems so that when you wake up, you go, I know how to solve this. Right. That problem is no longer a problem. Yeah. Got it. So that's what, if you start that cycle, you will wake up refreshed and ready to tackle problems. Yeah. If you don't wake up refreshed and tackle a problem, figure out whether it's 30 minutes or 90 minutes before you're ready to go, because sometime after you wake up, you will run into that first 90 minute period, not long after you wake up, two to three hours between each is what it's gonna take you to cycle. If you take a nap, they talk power napping, you'll accelerate that three to four hours to a shorter period of time because you're not allowing your senses to be overwhelmed. You're letting your system recover without extra stimulus. You can play with three to four hours between the 90 minutes or a power nap. Either one might work for you, but you can play with that until you know which one works best for your bio rhythms. You're like all other humans, but you use one mechanism better than another. It's what your body likes. Right. Well, there you have it, Impact Drivers. Now you can use what you've learned with neurosociology to help you make a bigger impact with your PMO and projects from helping you get the most out of your productive times to helping your teams thrive 
and even get rid of that nasty old change resistance. I hope you found this useful information that you can go apply right away. Remember to get some good sleep and give your brain the most opportunity you can to make a big impact for you during the day. That's it for this episode. And don't forget, take these episodes with you on the go. Download these episodes automatically on your favorite mobile device and make sure to hit subscribe. And if you love what you're hearing on these episodes, let me know. Make sure to leave a rating and review inside your favorite podcast player. And before you go, don't forget this episode is sponsored by Meisterplan. Meisterplan is a project portfolio management and resource management tool that helps companies create realistic and achievable project portfolios. With features like drag and drop project ranking, real-time scenario comparison, and allocation heat maps, portfolio managers have all the project data they need right at their fingertips. To see how Meisterplan can help you uncomplicate your project portfolio, take a free 30-day trial at Meisterplan. Dot com. That's M-E-I-S-T-E-R-P-L-A-N dot com. All right, Impact Driver, that's it for this episode. I hope you have a high impact rest of your week. Bye-bye for now.